Well, good morning. Let me invite you to remain standing as we prepare to hear God's Word. Today we are continuing our series in the book of Acts. We have this uh, sermon and next week's sermon, and then we are done with Acts. Over the weekend, our elders went to a presbytery meeting, and one of the privileges of that presbytery meeting that Jeremy Whitley and I get to sit on a, um, a group of people who help our candidates who want to become pastors get them through exams. And so we have to quiz them in theology and Bible and sacraments and things like that. And one of the questions that we ask the candidates is, well, tell us some of the elements in a sermon preached in the book of Acts. And then they kind of say those things. And we've been in Acts for six months now, so y'all all probably could answer that question really well. It's interesting, there's normally an inciting element that happens at the very beginning before a sermon. So like the Holy Spirit being poured out or a big healing or baptism or something like that. And then the apostle goes and he speaks about faith in Jesus Christ. When we get to this passage, what's really interesting is there is a big inciting incident of a snake latching on to Paul that we would expect him to preach a sermon about. And no sermon is forthcoming. Now, it's really interesting. I bet he did share the gospel. It's just that Luke didn't record it. But it's almost like Luke is saying to us, hey, you've been with Paul for a while now in the book of Acts. What would he say about the gospel of God in this really cool situation? Let's turn our attention to God's word now as we read it from Acts chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, Paul is, or Luke is talking about the shipwreck, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he must be a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we need it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, I do pray that you would come down by your spirit. Would you empower my preaching? Would you give me facility with this text and freedom of speech? Would you empower us to hear and receive these words of life? Put them into practice. Would you grow our faith? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So when my sister and I had graduated, moved out of the house, my dad, being in the oil business, took one last overseas assignment. My parents moved to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And one of the great things about that is that the company 
pays the family money to bring your immediate family over for a visit. So we thankfully were able to get to visit them in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and then went on to Cambodia for a short trip. In Cambodia, in the middle of the country, there's this very big lake named Tonle Sap. Tonle Sap is a fisherman's lake, and there are a lot of villages on the lake. They're called floating villages. They're built on top of the lake, right, and kind of on piers and stuff like that. And so we go in a boat towards one of these villages, and as we're going, the guide says, now, the mortality rate for children under five is about 15 percent in one of these places. A sad number. They don't have good access to health care, fresh water. Um, and uh, we also discovered another reason that the mortality rate was so high when we walked off the boat. To the right of us was a large pit full of crocodiles and snakes. It's really scary. Don't fall into that pit. To the left of us was an older lady and a young child, three or four years old. And the young child was holding a snake. And they were beckoning us us over to take pictures with the snake. And then I, we kind of like turned to the guide and the guide said, well, actually that snake is a, that's not a benign snake. That is a venomous snake. And what they do here is they send children out into the marshes to capture venomous snakes and then bring them back and pull the fangs out of the snake so that tourists can take pictures with a venomous snake and give money. That is kind of crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. It's sad. You can understand the collateral damage for these poor children. It's no wonder in experiencing this scene that cultures the world over have attributed, personified justice, judgment in the figure of a snake. We see it in our text today, don't we? Paul gets bit. He must be under divine judgment or justice. Before we get too deep into this story, one of the things that we recognize is that justice here doesn't have the final word. Mercy does. Mercy does. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to pull on these two threads of the story. The seeming justice or judgment that's coming down into Paul's life but the mercy that God is working in this story. And as we're just talking about these themes, these threads that run through, I want you to have in the back of your mind, sometimes my life feels like I'm under divine judgment. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? But know this, that for those who call upon the name of the Lord, God is at work to bring mercy. That's what we're going to have in the back of our hearts as we go through this passage. So first, life often feels like judgment. Paul's life doesn't look so good at this moment, does he? He's a prisoner in dishonor, shipwrecked on this foreign island, and then going to collect sticks, he gets bit by a viper. The uh, native people of Malta sum it up really well in verse 4, if you want to look with me at it. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, first, let's just think about the viper itself. There's a lot to unpack here, and I'm going to talk about snakes for a little while. So if you like snakes, you're going to get some information. It's going to be fun. 
There are some historical difficulties, actually, with this viper. While there are lots of venomous snakes in the Mediterranean, there are currently no venomous snakes on Malta. And so that has created a problem for theologians, historians. And so some say, well, there's another island called Malta in the Mediterranean off the coast of Croatia, and there's tons of venomous snakes there. So many that in 1910, they introduced a mongoose, or not just one, but mongoose, lots of them. I don't know what the plural of mongoose is, to kill off all of these venomous snakes. But the problem with that island, though it might fit, is the prevailing wind patterns and et cetera don't seem like it's the right fit. So that island of Malta, south of Sicily, still seems like the right island. Others have argued, well, maybe this viper was just kind of a tag-along. It got here in the hull or it came along in the driftwood. The problem with that, though, is that the native people seem to recognize this viper. They know when it bites Paul, this guy's going to die. Of course he's going to die. They even correctly understand the symptoms of this viper bite. He is going to swell up with internal hemorrhaging. Then he's going to fall over because he's dizzy. They get that this snake, they get, they understand what this snake is and what it does. Not only that, not only the medical details, but the historical details seem to check out pretty well for this viper's presence. Verse 2 tells us it's a cold and rainy night, and what do we know about snakes? They're attracted to the heat. Unfortunate, don't light a fire in order to keep snakes away, right? And so they're attracted to the heat, and that's how he gets near to this place, Lawrence of Arabia, that guy that traveled in the early 1900s around the deserts on a cold night in the desert actually records something very similar to what happened here to Paul. He says this, when the fire grew hot, he writes, a long black snake wound slowly out into our group. We must have gathered it with the twigs. These details, I think, tell us that there is an indigenous presence of vipers on Malta, so the question remains, why aren't they there anymore? Legend says that just like St. Patrick on Ireland, when St. Paul flung this snake into the fire, all of the venomous vipers in Malta threw themselves into the sea. They escaped. That's possible. It really is. Like, God has done more amazing things than that, right? We've seen greater miracles than that. But it's probably best to assume that over time, the densely populated island of Malta slowly but surely killed off the venomous snakes. We also learn a little bit more about the snake when Luke describes it as a creature. That's an interesting word. Luke could have used the word zoos. You can hear the word zoo or zoology in there. That just means animal. But he likes, he wants to call it a creature because there's some sort of slight almost mythical connotation to the word creature. Creature can mean wild beast. It can also mean like a chimeric creature of mythology. It can mean dragons or monsters. And the reason he does that, that it's not just any animal, is because it seems that the natives think it's not just any animal, right? They recognize in this creature that divine justice must be coming down upon Paul. Justice has not allowed him to live. In probably all of our translations, or at least most, that word justice is capitalized because it's the personification of a deity that they believed in. 
One commentator captures all of this information like this. Neptune failed to take him, so Nemesis had taken him. It was poetic justice. Now that's a lot of technical discussion about a snake, isn't it? Are we good? We follow that? I know there's a lot there, but here's why I thought it important to bring some of those details out of the text. If the old stories are to be believed, which I think they should be, the people of God have always been in an epic battle with the serpent. It's always been that. That underneath this world, in the world that we cannot see, what Martin Luther calls a world that is with devils filled, there is a battle raging. There is a battle raging. There's something that Paul believes that the native peoples didn't understand. Paul knows that because of Genesis 3.15 printed in the front of your bulletin, the seed of a woman is coming who will once and for all crush the serpent's head. He might be bit, but he will crush the serpent's head. Dear followers of Jesus, we sometimes feel like we're under a curse, don't we? We do. Like, we might not say that out loud, but we really think that divine justice is against us. The God of family must be out to get me. The God of money is not giving me what I want. Lord, am I under a curse right now? Paul wants to remind us, Jesus reminding us through this passage, that truly Jesus Christ has defeated the serpent once and for all, that justice smiles and asks no more of us, that we are no longer under a curse, that we no longer need fear, the venom of the evil one, but we are truly set free for divine mercy. We're truly set free for divine mercy. So what does Paul do? Verse 5, he nonchalantly just flings the serpent off and the serpent goes into the fire. It's this beautiful display of faith that knowing that God has other plans and purposes for him, that he won't die under divine justice here, he can just fling it off. And it reminds us, Christians, that one day when Jesus returns, that ancient serpent, our foe, will be cast finally and fully into the fire. Now, the reality is we know that serpents can bite, but in Christ Jesus, they cannot sting. Serpents can bite, but in Christ Jesus, they cannot sting. So they think that Paul is a god, verse 6. It's kind of a funny little thing. They go from thinking he is under the wrath of the gods to saying he must be a god, and they've missed it again, these natives, right? But they might actually see something hidden in there. He is no god but indwelled with the Spirit of God, being recreated into the image of God, Paul can say later on to the Romans and to all of us that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So here's what we need to ask. When we're low, when we're suffering, when we're in a hard place, not God, are you against me? but rather, God, how are you going to bend this hardship unto your glory and my mercy? 
how are you going to use this really hard thing in my life right now? Because I know I'm not under a curse. Jesus was under a curse. I can't be. How are you going to use this hard thing right now to show me your mercy? It's an important question to ask, isn't it? I think sometimes we really do just kind of stay stuck. We stay stuck in those hardships and we don't say, oh, I actually am being summoned to ask the question of faith, Lord, Lord, how will you show me your mercy here? Because God does show us his mercy. And in fact, as we just kind of pull on the thread of mercy through this passage, we see it all throughout. Look at verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. Now, that word Malta actually is not a Roman or Greek word. It comes from a Phoenician word. So the Phoenicians, those seafaring people, first settled Malta a couple of hundred years before this. And so that word actually has roots in the Semitic languages. Now, this is technical, but those languages that Paul spoke. So when he heard that this island was called Malta, Melita in the Phoenician, immediately Paul knew what that word meant, refuge, refuge. Doubtless, Paul had in his mind the song, not quite the song that we're about to sing, Psalm 46, but the words of that psalm. This is what they say, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. When we feel like we are at the very bottom, God is still our place of refuge. And God is creating for us a place of refuge. Then look at what Paul does in verse 3. At the bottom, gathering sticks for the fire. It's kind of beautiful, isn't it? Cold and wet. A prisoner who hasn't eaten for like a fortnight or have only eaten once in two weeks, and he is gathering sticks to feed the fire to help his crewmen who are suffering cold and dampness. A lot of times we think that the model of the Christian life is that we can best give mercy when we're in a place of strength, right? Like, God gives me mercy and puts me in this place of strength so that I can dole out mercy to others. But one of the reasons that God brings us low sometimes is it's because it's from the place of our humility and our weakness that He loves to show mercy to other people. That's what's going on in this passage. Paul and the crew of 276 seamen are in a difficult hardship, a position of weakness, not strength. But that is the perfect place for Paul to display the mercy and the kindness of his Savior, who stooped down to serve, who suffered and sacrificed for us. Just think about it. Mercy, the mercy of Jesus is always servanthood. Right? You never get a sense that Jesus lords it over you. He receives a prostitute's nard that she breaks and puts on his feet and then wipes them, anointing them with her hair. Right? Jesus stoops down to serve us, washing our feet. He submits to death on a cross. Mercy comes from God above, but the pattern of mercy is from below. 
The pattern of mercy is from below. Think about Paul's life. Always in humbling situations. Lowered down in a basket like a baby from the walls of Damascus. Underneath the Philippian jailer singing songs of deliverance. The Philippian jailer, when the earthquake comes, Paul, the, the, he thinks that Paul and the prisoners have left and he's about to kill himself. And Paul says, we are still here. It's from below that God brings mercy to this Philippian jailer. As Christians, we like to give mercy like the pagan gods. That's how we like to do it, from a place of strength. So here's a question. When is the last time you shared your struggles with someone else? Like really kind of shared them. There's this really sad thing that happens in American Christianity. Here's what happens. When we've got a lot of margin in our life, when things are going well, when we can get the kids up in the morning and get them dressed and looking dapper, then we can go to church, right? It's when we feel strong enough, then we can enter into this community. But that is not the pattern of the scriptures. It's because we are weak that we need to come together in this community. I was talking to actually a couple of families recently, and they both shared that it was finally when they were able to share the hardships and the struggles with people in their lives that God started answering their prayers for deliverance. Now, that's not like some sort of perfect promise for any of us, but it's a good reminder that there is a pattern here of weakness that receives the mercy of God. You ever think about like Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And here's what we can't do with that. We can't say, okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm going to try really hard to be poor in spirit. It doesn't work like that. What is he saying? He's like, you are poor in spirit. <laughs> you are poor in spirit. Stop pretending that you're not and receive the mercy and blessings of God. Sometimes the greatest mercy we'll ever receive is the mercy to be able to be low. It's best to share our burdens with others, to be burdened, in fact, in front of others, because that gives us a beautiful opportunity to share about the one who took all of our burdens in himself. Luke actually illustrates this really well. Right, Luke is the scribe. He's a physician by training. And one of the things that actually pops out, all the commentators recognize this, is there's tons of technical medical language in this passage. Okay? So he talks about what happens with the viper. You hemorrhage, swell up, and then you get dizzy. You fall over. Later on, when we hear Publius's father, like there's fever and there's dysentery, then he uses different words for healing and curing. And all of the people of the island come together to be cured and to he be healed of their diseases. And if we go too fast over this very small passage, we will miss it. This is one of the biggest healing events in all of the New Testament. It's one of the biggest, like the whole island of Malta comes together. And Luke the physician, how many of them did he heal? <laughs> None of them. It was God at work. Here's what I'm getting at. I'm thankful if you're a doctor. Thank you for being a doctor and for healing us. Seriously, thank you. God loves to work. He does work through our strength, 
right? Through doctors and through people with seminary training. But God loves to work through our weakness. God loves to work when we're low. He does. When Paul set sail in Acts 27, he boarded this large merchant ship. This was the merchant ship. It was full of grain. It was laden down with grain. And then it shipwrecked. What's really cool is that we get a nice bow tied on this story. Look with me at verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. They, that is the people of Malta, also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. The Greek here is emphatic. They honored us with many honors. And it kind of means two things. They both honored us like, like, hey, you're honored, you know. But also it means that they gave them honoraria, right? They gave them gifts. They laden down their boat with money, gifts, food, everything that they needed. And just imagine for a second, right? You're these merchants who lost all of your grain. You kept your life, but you're about ready to go back to those wealthy merchants and be like, yeah, sorry, I got nothing. But God puts this beautiful bow together. And then as the ship sets sail, probably repaired by these Phoenician natives, as the ship sets sail, it is just laid down with gold, money. A full reversal from the dishonor, from the shipwreck, from the justice that it felt like they were experiencing to the mercy and the glory and the honor. All because one guy, maybe a couple of his cohorts, believed that justice doesn't have the final say. That it's the mercy of God that has the final say. Now, I can't say that all of our stories are going to tie up neatly like that yet. We look back and we don't understand what God is doing to bring mercy and healing into our hard situations. We don't see it yet. But I know that one day, when we're riding off on that ship and we look back, we will not see a wake of destruction behind us. But we will say that God has given us a wake of mercy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness and love. Lord God, we just admit to you, we acknowledge to you, Lord, that sometimes we feel very low. and We do not know how you are going to bring something good out of something difficult, how you are going to bring mercy out of what feels like justice. So, Lord, we ask that you would give us faith, faith to hold on to our Savior, faith to hold on to the merciful one so that we could receive that mercy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.